Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 1st, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, they tell us that critical thinking is essential to our mental health, especially as we grow older. One of the favorite magazines I had when I was a kid was Games Magazine. You ever get those? Uh, I loved it. If you, I don't even know if they still publish it today, but it had all kinds of amazing puzzles and games and brain teasers inside it. Now, I know some folks, you are uh, uh, crossword puzzle fiends. Anybody do your, the crossword puzzle regularly? Okay, there we go. Others are a little bit more Sudoku-ish. Any Sudoku players? There we go. Uh, then there's the old school chess masters. Who likes chess? Okay. Uh, or you could be like Pastor Aaron and roll with uh, escape rooms, which combine, that's right, mental challenge activities with the stress of having a limited amount of time to solve it so you can get out of the room. Uh, in our household, we love jigsaw puzzles. And by we, I mean Jody loves jigsaw puzzles. And a typical 1,000-piece puzzle, Jody will put in maybe 994 of the pieces. I'm good for about five or six. And then that's, I feel like I've worked uh, my share. Um, this is our puzzle closet, by the way. Uh, and there's more puzzles than you see there because some of the ones are standing up and there's puzzles behind them. But of all the puzzles we own, this may be our most challenging puzzle. It looks innocent enough, right? A simple picture of a beach, a place you might like to be, especially when it gets hot in the summer like like it is now. Uh, But the challenge comes on the reverse side. It's a double-sided puzzle with the same picture, just the backside mirrored over and flipped. So when you take out a piece, you don't really know, is it the front side of the puzzle or the back? I don't know, maybe just the way that the shadows are moving, I, I don't know what. But if you are into puzzles, you are welcome to borrow this from us. And I'll put in maybe one or two pieces uh, when you're getting close to the end of it. Um, in today's sermon, we're going to be looking at a, cri- a critical thinking puzzle that is even more difficult than the one that you see here. Welcome to the second week in our current sermon series on the book of Daniel called Captivated. And for six weeks, we're looking at, is at this amazing book from the Old Testament that follows Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're living in captivity in the land of Babylon. They had been carried away when they're against their will when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian superpower army destroyed Jerusalem in the 6th century BCE. Now, last week I mentioned that although the setting is the 6th century BCE, the book probably wasn't written, scholars believe, for a couple hundred years later than that. It was written at a time in the history of Judaism where uh, many of the Hebrew people weren't living in Israel anymore. They had been scattered around the Mediterranean region and beyond. And so the book addresses the challenges of living out one's faith in a foreign land. How How can we stay faithful to God in an environment where it's really hard to practice that faithfulness. I think it's a relevant topic for us today as well. And though we may not be in the same scenario, uh, uh, living abroad, living under foreign rule, um, you know, it's not always easy for us to be faithful in today's society either. And so we're going to look together at what it is we can discern and learn uh, from these uh, interesting stories from the book of Daniel. 
So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Daniel. You can grab the Red Pew Bible in front of you. You can open your smartphone, uh, open the Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app, open the church app. And we have a link down on the first page. It says Bible, and it'll always take you to the passage, uh, the chapter that we're reading today. And I love the interactive uh, Bible reading uh, that we had uh, with Darla this morning. And we're, uh, we're going to go much beyond the 11 verses that were read. So we're going to begin at chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled, and sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was known as being uh, probably the most successful Babylonian emperor. Scholar Sharon Pace explains in her Smith and Helwes commentary that Nebuchadnezzar expanded his kingdom by engineering this brilliant military campaign against another superpower of the day, the Assyrians. And he basically took over all the lands that the Assyrians had held at that time. He conquered them. And so he inspired fear among his captives and awe among his subjects. Not to mention that you may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Those gardens were made under King Nebuchadnezzar and his rule. His fame was renowned. So this great king has a problem, a dream problem, actually a a bad dream problem. And and not just one bad dream, but uh, the author says dream, so it must have been multiple occasions of the same dream. He can't sleep at night, and during the day it says his spirit is troubled. So evidently, this was something that was happening for a while and just consumed all of his waking and sleeping energy. Throughout the ancient Near East, dreams were widely thought to uh, convey messages from the gods. They would warn favored humans of impending disaster or inform them of some future boon or advise them of future decisions they should make. Rick Lowry in his Storyteller's Companion to the Bible notes that the Babylonian kings, particularly the last king, uh, Nabonidus, relied heavily on dream interpretation to guide his royal policy. The Bible mentions a number of kings who dreamed important dreams and on occasions even needed uh, interpretation from the prophets. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar calls his peeps, uh, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. We mentioned last week that the Chaldeans was a class of people who had a particular expertise in religious interpretation and astrology. Isn't it kind of amazing that the king has this many people on his payroll uh, who dabble in dream interpretation? I mean, it seems a little bit excessive to me, doesn't it? But surely with all these many skilled officials, they'll get the job done. Verse 3. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will reveal the interpretation. So the king's posse has arrived. They're ready to do their thing. Once they know the dream, they can consult their books of wisdom to come up with the exact interpretation to help their boss. Verse 5. The king answered the Chaldeans, this is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. 
Well, evidently there's some history between the king and his advisors, and uh, maybe he's been disappointed in some of their uh, past uh, prognostications. Maybe he's uh, uh, a little bit fed up with what he thinks uh, they're doing, just consulting the books and not really having the true insight. So uh, he tells them that if they're not able to do this, not only is he going to fire them, He's going to kill them. He's going to tear them limb for limb. And and so basically, they're realizing this is no ordinary staff meeting today with the king. The advisors tell the king, uh, we would be happy to interpret your dream for you. Just tell us the dream first, and then we will give you the interpretation. That's how things work, they said. At which point, the king accuses them of trying to stall for more time. And he says, you know what you have to do. Do it or face the consequences. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. I mean, it seems now, finally, at verse 10, they're beginning to understand what it is that the king is actually asking them to do. Um, How should we break this to you, king? Uh, Let's see. It's not possible. There is no way what you're asking can be done. What's interesting to me, though, is uh, there's so many magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, none of them actually say that they're going to appeal to their gods for any kind of insight. They tell the king that only a god can reveal what the king is asking, but evidently none of theirs are willing to talk. And without even knowing it, the king's officials have set the stage for our hero, Daniel. Verse 12. Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The decree was issued and the wise men were about to be executed and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them also. And as they say in the uh, movies, that escalated quickly, didn't it, right? The king is more than a bit upset. He's willing to follow through on the threat that he had made just a few moments ago. And he gets to the point of kill them all, which includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 14, then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. Now let's set aside for a moment the notion that if the king kills all of his uh, interpretation advisors, there's going to be no one left to actually interpret what his dream means, and it's going to drive him crazy. Uh, Aside from that, we discover that Daniel and company are also lumped in with this death decree because they too are working as wise men for the king. Fortunately for Daniel, though, he doesn't work alone. And we don't know his game plan just yet, but we have to expect it has something to do with the God of Israel. And doesn't it seem interesting to you that the king's executioner, Ariok, is, uh, seems to be more willing to listen to Daniel than he is to follow through on what the king has asked him to do in the first place? Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. 
So notice that Daniel doesn't call a staff meeting of the king's advisors to get together and try to come up with the best strategy, putting all of their brilliant heads together to save their own skins. No, he goes to his three friends and asks them to pray. Again, something that the Babylon sages didn't do at all. No mention of them praying. And I wonder how often are we like them? That we forget this important task, that when some challenge or crisis or difficulty arises in our lives, we move into problem-solving mode, and we start trying to figure out what our best plan of action might be when all along we forget that we should begin by taking it to God first. By the way, the phrase, uh, this mystery, that's a Persian term, and it refers to a secret which cannot be known except through divine revelation. And divine revelation is exactly where Daniel is going. There's an interesting passage in the Old Testament in the book of Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. Saul was the first king, then David, and then his David's son Solomon was the third king. And when Solomon was uh, crowned as king, there's in chapter 8 this big long prayer that he prays on behalf of his people. And there's an interesting section in the middle of that prayer that says this. If the people sin against you, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, yet if they plead with you in the land of their captors, and pray to you toward their land, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer, and their plea of your people Israel, listening to them whenever they call to you. Does that sound familiar? This prayer came hundreds of years before the Babylonian captivity, and now that's exactly where Daniel and his companions are in that same scenario. And they are coming before God with a prayer. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So their prayers were answered, praise God. The seemingly impossible task was made possible by God's grace. God reveals the mystery to Daniel in his own dream that very night in which he was praying. And so before Daniel rushes off to tell the king the answer, he offers up his own prayer of thanksgiving. And you can read that later on your own in verses 20 through 23. But I just want to highlight verse 22. Daniel says, God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. In this prayer, Daniel is praising God who is the one who determines history, who provides revelation, who is the source of all earthly wisdom and power, and Daniel acknowledges that God has provided this insight for him, and he's grateful and thankful What a difference, isn't it, the way between Daniel and the Babylonian sages uh, approach this mental challenge? One group says, it's impossible, king. What you ask can't be done. And Daniel says, no, I believe with God all things are possible. There's a story in the Jewish book of legends called Sefer Haggadah that sheds some light on Daniel's prayer. It says, "A, a, a woman of Roman nobility asked one of the Jewish rabbis a question once. Why does the book of Daniel say that God gives wisdom to the wise? Shouldn't it say that God gives wisdom to fools? What do the wise need with more wisdom? The rabbi asked her, do you own any jewelry? Of course I do. Don't be silly, she replied. Well, then tell me, he asked, if a rich person and a poor person both came to you asking to borrow your jewelry, to whom would you lend it? Well, to the rich person, of course, she said. 
Well, why do the rich person, asks the rabbi. You really are too much, says the woman. I would loan it to the wealthy of the two because if she lost it, she could replace it or repay me. Besides, she wouldn't lose it because she would know the value of those things. Exactly, concluded the sage. You lend jewelry only to the rich. Shall God then give wisdom to fools who have no use for it or can't even value it? So Daniel's prayer reminds us that we want to be people of wisdom. We want to be men and women and young people of faith that draw close to God and ask for wisdom every day over the course of our lives. Why? So that when we especially need it, God will know that we are not going to waste it. We'll recognize the value it has in life, and hopefully God will bestow wisdom upon us. Now, we move into the second half of this epic 49-verse chapter, verse 25. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "Uh, Are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, "Uh, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. And though his life is online, Daniel takes a moment to send a little evangelism on the way to the king of Babylon, right? And instead of kings and magicians and wise men with their textbooks of dream interpretation, Daniel says, you know, the one person that can reveal dreams is the Lord God Almighty. In fact, Israelites believe that divine knowledge was needed to solve human problems. Think about that for a moment. When you have an especially difficult problem in life, don't try to figure it out on your own. Look to God. God can give wisdom, insight, and guidance in ways that no other person or entity can. Sharon Pace notes that that expression at the end, the end of days, is used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures to speak about dramatic changes in world history. Scholars are, uh, they disagree on whether or not it's referring to the end times, like, you know, when Jesus will come back and the second coming and everything will be made right by God. They don't know, but needless to say, Daniel is letting the king know that something very significant is about to change in history and your dream is telling us what to do. And so finally, we come to the dream itself. Are you ready? You've waited over an hour to figure out what this dream actually is. Here we go. Verse 31. Daniel says, You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge. Its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the statue was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You may notice that the giant statue has a variety of metals. It goes uh, from high value at the top to the lowest value at the bottom. A head of gold, chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of a mix of iron and clay. Now, the Babylonians loved statues. They had them everywhere. And the bigger and the taller, the better. So Nebuchadnezzar would have been right at home with this vision. But that wasn't the end of his dream. Verse 34, Daniel continues, As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not not by human hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this was probably the part of the dream that most terrified the king, and rightly so, because this supernatural stone comes out of nowhere, smashes the statue at its weakest point, its feet, and wipes it out entirely, annihilates it. Scholars today believe that the stone represents God's power. And it's no incident, uh, coincidence that after the debris is blown away, all that's left is that stone which becomes a great mountain. For in the Old Testament, in the book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 2, we read this. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. So the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream looks ahead to that day when God would judge all the nations and divine justice would triumph, but it would also be that moment when everybody would come to know the Lord. People from all over the world would be compelled to worship God. Verse 36. This was the dream, says Daniel. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king of kings, who to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given human beings wherever they lived, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, and to whom he established as a ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. Sociologists say that a person needs to hear five positive things about themselves before they're ready to hear one negative criticism. I think that's what Daniel is doing at the beginning of this interpretation, right? You're amazing, king. You are the gold atop this statue. And undoubtedly, uh, history supports that, saying that Nebuchadnezzar was the most outstanding monarch in Babylonian history. But he didn't end history. Verse 39. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, And yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the whole earth, and then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all of these. W. Sibley Toner, in his interpretation commentary on Daniel, notes that a lot of ink has been spilt over the years trying to figure out which of these four kingdoms uh, were particular kingdoms from history, and uh, what is it that, how does it match up through the historical data? Most modern interpreters will say they they believe that the historical epoch symbolized by these parts of the statue are the Babylonian Empire as the head, the Median Empire in the upper torso, the Persian Empire in the lower torso, torso, and then the Hellenistic kingdoms of Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids of Antioch in Syria as the legs and feet. And to many of you, it sounds like wah, 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 right? I know. I love history. Not everybody loves history. You know what? That's not important. What I want to focus on is the big picture. And what does this dream say? Kingdoms and civilizations rise and fall. Nebuchadnezzar, though his reign was mighty and powerful at his time, he would not rule forever. Nor would the Greeks, nor would the Holy Roman Empire, one of the greatest uh, uh, kingdoms of the time that had all kinds of amazing technological advances. But nothing lasts forever except the kingdom of God. 
Now, I'm about to say something that some might find scandalous, but as wonderful as our country is, as liberating as our nation has been over the years, bringing freedom and new opportunity to so many, the United States is not the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream would inform him that the only kingdom that truly matters is God's kingdom, where peace and justice and righteousness prevail. Now, as important as it is to be patriotic and support our country, which I am, the ultimate allegiance for us has to be with God's kingdom. In verses 41 to 45, Daniel explains in detail to the king about all the things that will take place according to his dream, and then we get his concluding statement. Verse 45, the great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. This is Daniel's thus saith the Lord, period, on the end of his interpretation. He's just laid a whole lot of reality down on the king. How will Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, does anybody else find it strange that the king has just had this threatening and unfavorable dream about the whole statue is going to fall down and collapse and be blown away to nothing, and he seems super excited about it? I mean, did he forget the part about the silver chest rising up over his golden head? Or, or maybe, even more importantly, that is a, there's this Babylonian monarch who personally marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, someone who carried away into exile a substantial portion of Jerusalem's population, who became Israel's public enemy number one. This very person suddenly confesses Israel's God as the supreme deity. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing turn of events, don't you think? Though I don't think the king quite understands what it means to call God the king of kings when he's so quick to fall down and worship the messenger of the king of kings that came and told his interpretation. Commentator Rick Lowry notes that this story shows that even evil leaders by the power of God can be redeemed. No matter how powerful and wicked an enemy may be, the God of heaven is ever willing and able to redeem even the worst among us. In the end, Daniel was rewarded with all kinds of gifts. He was put in charge of all of the wise men who served the king. His friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, now referred to uh, for the rest of the book from their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're also given promotions. They're moved across the province. Daniel stays back at the palace with the king. We'll hear more about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego next week. But in the meantime, what are some of the big uh, key themes of faith that we can discern from this incredible chapter from Daniel 2? I think first and foremost, the understanding that through it all, God is in control. That, uh, that, that, that's a theme we'll find over and over throughout the book of Daniel. I mean, it looked like things were taking a bad turn. Uh, Daniel and all of the wise men were uh, going to be executed, and, and the king was asking something that nobody could possibly come up with. And precisely at that moment, God intervened and worked and gave a message and brought not only the four Hebrew young men, but all of the advisors through to safety. 
Second, I think is a saying that God can use anybody to fulfill God's purposes. That God uses a ruthless king's dream to share the vision of what God's kingdom would ultimately be about. I mean, can you imagine if you were the first hearers hearing this story of Daniel and you, uh, as a Jew, were living somewhere under a foreign rule and you were uh, overwhelmed with how you could live out your faith and thinking that maybe God had abandoned and left you and you hear this message that God can use even the people that are making your life miserable right now. They can be agents of hope and grace. And then third, I think the story tells us that prayer matters. When the Babylonian movers and shakers could think of nothing that would help them with the great king's puzzle, Daniel went to the throne of God, and he asked his friends to come alongside him and pray with him. And God answered their prayer. And it may seem simple, folks, but prayer matters. And, and, and sometimes we, we think that our situations in life get so overwhelming and, and, and it's hopeless and unchangeable, but never underestimate what can happen when God's people pray? That's why we ask for prayer concerns. We have you write them down on the cards or go to the uh, app and, and send your prayer requests. And we have folks that are praying every week for your prayer concerns because we believe when we band together in prayer, amazing things happen. Maybe not always what we're asking to happen, but that God gives us what we need most. May God reveal which of these are or other messages that you experienced through the reading of this word, uh, may you take to heart one of those this week. As we seek to live out our own faith, wherever it is that God has placed us with all the ups and downs and challenges that life has to offer, may we remember that God is in control. And all God's people said... Amen.